Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Raff. I'm Manish Raff, and I, I'm grateful to all of you for participating in this episode. This is our 75th episode, I estimate. We've been doing this for about seven years, and and so it's a big uh, big milestone, a big anniversary, 75 episodes. And uh, and just to give you a little brief background, the OSHA 3030 is a program that we do about every 30 days, and we try and cover a an issue in OSHA law that is developmental or something that is new to you uh, in about 30 minutes, thus the title of the OSHA 3030. Uh, as I said, I am Manish Rath. I'm a partner at the law firm Keller & Heckman here in Washington, D.C. Uh, amongst other things, we are an OSHA law, law firm that engages in counseling. Uh, we aid with industries in rulemaking and uh, assist employers in citation contests as well. Uh, my partners, David Servati, Larry Halpern, and several others have joined me uh, at the OSHA 3030 for a number of years now, and as well some of our other staff, including Jovanina Kumaram, John Gustafson, and several other names that you might recognize. Uh, for those 75 episodes, they are all libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. A lot of different topics ranging from decisions from the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, rulemaking initiatives at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, cases that have been developed in federal court, and uh, issues that have arisen out of state law as well are all libraried at that website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And even some of the older episodes are still very relevant uh, to this day for those of you wishing to learn more about the field of OSHA law. Uh, in between our monthly uh, programs, you can catch more developments on Twitter, at Rathmonish. Uh, this program is a podcast as well, so if you can't make it at the webinar at the appointed hour and be at a computer, you can just subscribe to your favorite uh, podcast channel, such as the podcast app on Apple or uh, iTunes, Podcast Addict, etc., and then it will just automatically stream through. Uh, and as well, we all have LinkedIn pages, uh, David Cervati, Larry Halpern, myself, and others, as well as the Cullen Heckman Workplace uh, page. But I'm not joined by those colleagues today. In celebration of our 75th anniversary, we have a very special guest here at the OSHA 3030. It is the chairman of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, uh, Commissioner James Sullivan. Uh, Commissioner, thank you very much for joining the OSHA 3030, and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, Commissioner, I've, I've known you for a few years, and uh, I, rather for the sake of brevity, rather than uh, addressing you throughout the entire program as Commissioner Sullivan, can I take the informal and just refer to you as Commissioner? Absolutely. But I also note that your your proper title is probably Chairman, since uh, as of was it about August? I think. Tell me the exact date that you became. Uh, it was the middle chair. of July. Then I was named Chairman. Okay, so let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, I think one of the, we've only got you for 30 minutes, and it's a real treat to have you aboard. Uh, but I think some of the things that I'd like to talk to you about include uh, the role to start off with, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, uh, because we have safety and health professionals as well as in-house counsel and other uh, members of the safety and health community, Commissioner. Uh, so let's first talk real quickly about the role of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission and the function of the commissioners, the chairs, and then, then we can get into some other Topics. I'm personally curious. You've been the only 
Commissioner, for a bit of time now, and so I want to get into that afterwards. Uh, but I think the first thing we ought to do is talk about the commission itself and how it's structured as distinct from, for example, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Well, actually, most people don't realize that it is distinct from the Occupational Safety and Health uh, um it's unfortunate that even some of my practitioners and partners and associates at law firm when I was named as a commissioner were unaware of the difference between the Occupational Safety Health Review Commission and OSHA. But the Review Commission was established in 1970 when the act was passed to be a separate independent agency from OSHA that would be the neutral arbiter of um, disputes between <clears throat> employers who were recited by the Department of Labor and the Department of Labor. So, <clears throat> unfortunately, it doesn't get a lot of publicity uh, outside of OSHA, and almost everyone that I spoke with when I was nominated and then confirmed by the Senate uh, about what I was currently doing and had stopped practicing law said, oh, you're with OSHA. So um, <laughs> part of my campaign is to try to keep uh, telling people, no, we're not part of OSHA. We're this uh, neutral and independent agency. So we have three commissioners. And uh, they're appointed by the president and and confirmed by the United States Senate. And then <clears throat> two of those commissioners can constitute a quorum and take a official action on behalf of at least the affirmative vote of two members. Um, two recent appointments were made because I have been, as you mentioned, Monash, the only commissioner since the end of April and therefore did not constitute a quorum and could not take official action for these several past months and continues to cannot take official action as an individual commissioner unless uh, you consider granting a petition for discretionary review, which I guess is official action. But um, I can grant cases for review, and I can't decide cases at the current time. So, so the term I would use is you are in quarate currently, and without a quorum, no decision can be can be uh, passed. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, but now, that I'm gonna mean go... the commission is not operating. I mean, we have just so for those some majority of the podcast fans out there know, but for those who don't, we have 12 administrative law judges that uh, conduct hearings, receive evidence, render decisions, and are still doing that. Um, those judges are either based in Washington. Denver or Atlanta, and um, <clears throat> I also, from some people that don't practice uh, before the Review Commission, they're unaware of the fact that these hearings are conducted in accordance with the federal rules of civil procedure. Um, many people, when I told them what I was going to do, they said, oh, you're an administrative law judge, and you kind of have like hold arbitrations, and I said, no. <laughs> First of all, I'm like, more like an appellate judge than an administrative law judge because I hear the appeals with my two colleagues. And secondly, they're not like arbitrations. They do uh, utilize the full uh, panoply of the federal rules of civil procedure. Uh, there's discovery, there's hearings, there's briefing. Um, and uh, unless you opt for the simplified proceedings, it's much like any other proceeding you would have in a courtroom. Um, some people are surprised to hear that. And yeah, it's problem. A good, Go ahead. It's a good point to bring up. So essentially the act, as you said, in 1970, created three, called for the creation of three uh, distinct agencies, 
NIOSH uh, comes under the Health and Human Services Department. A lot of people don't realize that that's separate as well. OSHA is in the Department of Labor, and they make rules, and they can enforce rules. They can bring an allegation of a violation. And then your agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, is one of 44 truly independent agencies that don't belong under any department, and they they have a direct line up to the executive branch, just like the departments. Your What you've just said, Commissioner, just to clarify for everyone, the Review Commission is an independent tribunal, like right. a court would be in an, under Article 3. And it's these judges that you're referring to, the administrative law judges, they would be the equivalent of a trial court where evidence is presented, there's rules of uh, evidence and there's rules of uh, civil procedure that are applied in the proceedings. Then, Plus there's extensive you, discovery in complicated cases right, as right. well. And some of the hearings last uh, more than three weeks in very complex right. cases. So um, I think that most people are unaware of that fact. So it's both the trial level and then the commission, the three commissioners form the equivalent of a court of appeals. They can grant, and really, uh, unlike the U.S. Court of Appeals, they can grant or deny review. And then there's another alternative. If review is denied, uh, there's an alternative to go to the federal court system. Is that right? Correct. And there's no requirement that they actually petition for review uh, from an administrative law judge decision to us. They can just let that 30-day period of review pass and then take their chances in the United States Court of Appeals where the employer uh, activity was located or at the D.C. Circuit. We have several decisions currently on appeal, including several decisions that the Review Commission rendered uh, in addition to those just rendered below by the ALJ that became final orders. And and so, as you know, the, the Commission's business is still churning along quite quite busily at the administrative law judge level. And I think <coughs> at the commissioner level, you're still reviewing cases for uh, discretionary review. Yeah, I mean, we have probably between any time 1,500 and 2,000 cases that are docketed in terms of cases that are contested by employers, that are citations contested, as our audience probably knows, you know, you have to contest within 15 working days or hold an informal conference. And then um, once the case is uh, contested and the file sent to the Solicitor of Labor on behalf of OSHA and under the Department of Labor, um, within 21 days, uh, the Solicitor of Labor is supposed to file a complaint and once a complaint is filed, we get that case docketed with an administrative law judge who can hear the, the uh, proceeding. Many of those are delayed because, uh, as most people know, more than 90% of all citations issued against employers end up being settled, uh, in part because the cost of litigating matters vis-a-vis the proposed penalties that have been issued by the Department of Labor are very widely, and some employers find it in their interest to um, not spend that money to defend their themselves in, uh, in, in a hearing before the ALJ. But um, <clears throat> we have a lot of cases that are currently in trial or in hearing, and we have a lot of cases that are waiting decisions to be written by the respective administrative law judges. I want to go into one more thing before we move to another subject. Your role as a commissioner serves like an appellate judge, but in addition, as the chair, you have uh, you wear essentially two hats. Uh, you are also 
essentially the head of the agency. Is that not so? That is correct. And so what are the kinds of duties that you would have on that side of your job description? Well, they're pretty widely uh, uh, and varied, I should say. The budget uh, submission uh, to Congress, um, the administrative task of filling vacancies and approving uh, vacancies, approving hires. Really, there's um, although we have an executive secretary that acts like a clerk of a court, um, pretty much all of the decisions that are um, have to be made in terms of the administrative duties uh, are done by the chairman with the assistance of uh, our executive director um, and um, our operating directors. So we have a great staff. We have uh, approximately 60 employees, um, the bulk of which are in Washington, D.C., in our offices. And uh, <clears throat> once you are become chairman, as opposed to just being commissioner, you learn that there are a lot of uh, things that you have to approve and things you have to overlook. I mean, see, I'm sorry, oversee and and uh, authorize. It's an unusual uh, role to have to have. I, mean, I don't think there's very many agencies out there where the head of the agency has both of those kinds of functions, maybe to a certain extent the National Labor Relations Board and you. And I think that makes it a, a, one of those almost unique uh, kinds of positions in, in the federal government. Yeah, and I always make the distinction between us and the National Labor Relations Board because they are all one unified agency where the administrative law judges, the the uh, so the prosecutor in a sense, the regional directors uh, um, are all unified, whereas we have here a situation where we don't have any uh, particular role to play with OSHA and in its, in its duties, either in its enforcement or administration of the act. So let's talk about vacancies a little bit. You mentioned that just now, uh, which I think is, is probably one of the more interesting facets of the commission at the moment for practitioners like me. Uh, let's start from uh, from the left uh, where we look at the administrative law judges. I noticed that there's maybe three current vacancies. Is that right? Or two? It looks like two vacancies for for attorney advisor positions. Yeah, these um, these are vacancies that I authorized to be filled recently, and we are in the process of filling them. These are attorneys that <clears throat> assist our administrative law judges with the cases that they're handling, both in <clears throat> helping them to draft opinions, uh, legal research, et cetera. Um, we, all, we have these attorney advisors at various locations, and we ask them to help with the administrative law judges, irrespective of whether they're in the same office or they're working someplace else. Some of our employees actually do remote work remotely from locations, and um, I have been uh, happy to, to authorize those positions. I think they'll be filled very soon. That's fantastic news. So the way to think of this for a practitioner like me who appears before your commission is that these would be the equivalent of a judge's law clerk, except that they're professional standing uh, attorney advisors rather than a one- or two-year term. That's correct. That's great that they're uh, in progress for filling those positions. So I imagine that the, the uh, docket for those administrative law judges will be moving a little bit more rapidly with that help. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't skip over the most important. I think, uh, Commissioner, I, I should give you the honor of, of sharing any news about the two vacant commissioner positions. Yes, yeah, so it was recently announced uh, in the last two weeks that 
my current uh, chief counsel, Amanda Wood Lehow, has been nominated by the president to fill a vacancy as commissioner, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, former commissioner Cynthia Atwood has also been nominated by the president. Um, traditionally, the commission has had two members from the majority party, that is the president's party, and one member from minority party. Uh, Ms. Atwood is a Democrat. Uh, Ms. Uh, Lehal is a Republican. Um, we are hoping that because we have both a Republican and a Democrat uh, going to be considered by the Senate at this point, that we would hopefully get um, those nominations confirmed more quickly than has been in the past so we can get back to business. I noticed Sorry. that – yeah, I think that's fantastic news, and that news is within a week old. So so the listeners of the OSHA 3030 community – I should say that that news of that not those nominations. So listeners to this community are amongst the very first to hear it and to hear it straight from you. Uh, I, I recollect that the Mine Safety uh, and Health Review Commission had uh, a nominee, uh, Commissioner Ratchkovich, and it took about a year to go from nomination to swearing in. But I, I think you make a good point that that because there may be a nominee from each party going together or in tandem that that may have an effect of accelerating the process. How long did your process take? Is that something you can describe? Yeah, I was nominated in uh, May and confirmed in the end of August of 2017. Okay, so pretty smooth so, relative to Commissioner Ratchkovich. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately he had a long waiting period, and um, as we have seen with other nominations, including the nomination for Assistant Secretary for OSHA, um, <clears throat> it just for some reason just doesn't happen. I think another thing that was relatively brief, Commissioner, was your period of being in Quarate. You you became the sole commissioner where we needed three. You were the only one. If I recollect, it was around April of, two, of 2019. Yeah, and then and then you might go hopefully only a very short period forward. And the last time I recollect that happening might have been uh, Commissioner Rogers after Commissioner Eisenberry his term automatically just came to its natural expiration. Uh, that left Commissioner Rogers uh, as the only commissioner, and and there was a, a significant backlog of decisions waiting to be published during that period, lacking a quorum. How have things? Uh, how has the backlog been during this period for you, of being in Well, great? we were f fortunate to before Chairman McDougal stepped down to issue uh, a number of decisions. Uh, in uh, the early winter of last year, uh, a couple of very significant decisions. And uh, so that helped with our backlog. We still have, unfortunately, some cases that are undecided and have been fully briefed that are closing in on three years old. We have about 20 cases uh, on the docket to be cited, including some recent uh, petitions for discretionary review that have been granted. Um, so our goal is to get all of the cases that are waiting to be decided um, under that uh, period of time of you know at least no more than two years old. Um, unfortunately, because of the lack of quorum over the years, I think that we've had a lack of quorum, in, I don't know, many, many times over the past seven to ten years, uh, and in large part because uh, – Commissioners have left early uh, before the terms have ended or things have been held up in the uh, appointment or confirmation process. But 
I'm confident that <clears throat> once we get that quorum back, uh, we are going to be able to go through and issue decisions, I hope, on a fairly rapid pace, um, and that um, we have terrific lawyers who work with us at the Office of General Counsel to help us with uh, formulating written opinions based on our meetings. We meet, uh, we generally meet when we have a quorum once a month to decide cases, um, and then <clears throat> we go about the the, uh, the, the uh, part of writing those decisions. Um, we had a lot of disagreements between uh, the commissioners in the past year, as you can tell from the number of separate opinions that were written in some decisions right. that are published and out there. So that kind of also slows things down when you don't have a single majority or even just two majority and one dissent. Um, but I hope that I can get our two new commissioners to work together so we can get decisions out um, a little bit more frequently and a little bit more rapidly. Well, I think that uh, there's great promise to believe that or to be optimistic about that. The, the nominee, uh, Ms. Atwood, uh, as you said, is is a commissioner, former commissioner who whose new term had naturally expired and is being renominated back to her position, and uh, so is very familiar with the process and can hit the ground running. And uh, the nominee, Ms. Amanda Wood, has been in the commission in her, her capacity as, uh, is it counsel to the commissioner, she, counsel to the chair? She was counsel to the commissioner, and then when I was made chairman, she became chief counsel to the chairman, which is her current position. And a very judicious and balanced uh, uh, legal thinker. And so I'm, I have a great optimism about uh, Ms. Wood being on the commission as well. I think that you're you're going into a period, if everything goes smoothly with the nomination process of having a fantastic uh, commission for the purpose of chipping away at the backlog and, and uh, getting things running full steam. So I'm excited for you. Thank you. Uh, is there anything that you can share about uh, what your, your expectations are, not just about the backlog, but about anything going forward once you get a full quorum? Well, um, I can't really talk about the deliberative process or cases that are currently before us. I would right. hope that we could um, perhaps continue the process of having oral argument in our Washington office on certain cases. As you know, and maybe some of your listeners know that back in June, we had oral argument in uh, two important cases, well, three, but two uh, very important cases under the general duty clause, uh, Integra Health Management, and a case called A.H. Sturgill, which created a lot of uh, interest <clears throat> among the bar uh, and others, including the media. We had uh, the opportunity there to uh, opine on the purpose and scope of the general duty clause, which your audience may be familiar with, which is that provision of the act, which basically said we can't uh, allow – as we go forward from 1970, have employers only uh, have to comply with whatever specific standards were adopted or then later issued under the notice and comment provisions of the Americans with our Administrative Procedure Act. But we also need some kind of gap filling or general obligation for employers to keep their workplaces uh, free from recognized hazards. And uh, because standard setting has been difficult, for OSHA, 
in certain areas over the years, the use of the general duty clause has increased uh, significantly by OSHA in the enforcement um, scheme. And uh, the Integra Health Management case was the first time that the commission had the opportunity to decide whether or not a homicide of a uh, <clears throat> an employee by one of the, the employer's clients uh, could qualify as something covered by the general duty clause. Um, and if you look at the three, well, the, the, the separate opinions written in the case, you could see there was a great deal of disagreement upon how to interpret the general duty clause, but all three commissioners ultimately decided in Integra that under the facts of that case, the general duty clause did apply. Now, this was a case that generated a lot of interest from various uh, folks that filed briefs with the commission, the U.S. Chamber, uh, the, um, the nurses' unions, the service employee unions, uh, all concerned about the scope of the general duty clause in cases involving instances where an employee may be <clears throat> uh, seriously injured or murdered by a visitor, a coworker, a former coworker, et cetera. And as we know, with the number of mass shootings and shootings that have increased exponentially in recent years, um, it is becoming a situation where, although in 1970, I personally did not believe that the uh, Congress ever contemplated that this statute would cover homicides by third parties and perhaps even coworkers. Um, in this instance now where we have, the, I believe, a, sometimes it is reasonably foreseeable that an employer could see something like this happening because of the situation they put their employees in and exposure to certain uh, populations. That I think that <clears throat> if the if OSHA is able to show, as they were here, that there was a feasible means of minimizing that risk, then the general duty clause is covered. Although we all, I think, agreed and wrote in our opinions that it would be much more helpful if, as in California, there's a standard that applies, especially to social services or the healthcare industry, where many of these. Uh, unfortunate things happen so that employers would have a little bit more notice as to what their obligations are because it's difficult um, for employers to decide whether or not if someone were to, say, murder one of my employees, whether it's a visitor to my facility or <clears throat> um, a former employee, which is many of the cases in some of these mass shootings, et cetera, do I have obligations under the Act to to take measures to minimize that risk. And it, it also creates, just so you know, I should say that there's a distinction here between folks thinking, well, this is not, is this strict liability? I mean, what if there's nothing we can do? Well, OSHA clearly is not a strict liability standard. So the key thing for people to focus on, I believe, is the fact that you can demonstrate that there was something that could have been done to to, to minimize the, the, the chance of this happening. And I always talk to people that are familiar with the SeaWorld case where the trainer was dragged off of the platform by the killer whale Tillamook. Um, 
case was not decided by the Review Commission. It was decided by our, one of our administrative law judges, and then appeal on the D.C. Circuit was confirmed with a very interesting group of people, including Judge Merrick Garland, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and our current Secretary of Labor, Dean Scalia, as one of the, the counsel for um, for SeaWorld. So in that case, the, the, uh, the Court of Appeals and the administrative law judge found that they could have put a barrier up. She could have still done what she was trying to do, which was to mimic, to get, get the, the killer whale to mimic her turning over, and that barrier might have prevented her from being dragged in and under, and there was a lot of history with that killer whale. Most people are familiar with those facts. But I also point that uh, there's a very interesting dissent by Justice Kavanaugh in that case that talks about the scope of where where OSHA is headed with this type of uh, of citation involving the entertainment industry, where many viewed some things like under the concept of assumption of a risk, assumption of the risk, whether it's Cirque du Soleil, the NFL, the NHL, all things that are covered by OSHA, but involve entertainment that is very dangerous. So <clears throat> I talk to folks a lot about the general duty clause and I talk about let's you know, I would say that if you want to learn more about it, start with a SeaWorld decision and then look at the Integra decision. And we also have re- issued some more recent decisions, including the Sturgill case, which involved a employee who was from a uh, labor supplier first day on the job uh, and died on the roof roofing contractor was cited um, under the general duty clause because we don't have a federal heat stress standard. Um, In that particular case, uh, former Chairman McDougall and I found that the Department of Labor and the Secretary of Labor had not made out the case that that was a um, citable offense under those facts under the general duty clause. So it's an interesting uh, and, frankly, exciting time for me to be a commissioner because of these, uh, what I would consider to be very precedent-setting um, and groundbreaking decisions that that have been made and, and are now, um, in some cases, like Sturgill, on appeal to the United States Court of Appeals. I'm glad. Integra is not on appeal. Right. Right, and I'm glad, Commissioner, that you mentioned these cases. These are cases that we've covered in the OSHA 3030. Uh, in March and April of 2019, we covered Integra and Sturgill. And you can go catch those, for those of you listening, if you did miss those episodes, back on our website. The SeaWorld case that, uh, Commissioner, you mentioned was a court of appeals for the District of Columbia decision that it was issued in 2014. And for those of you interested, it's found at 784 F3rd at page 1202. And I can pull that for anyone who's interested, just shoot me an email and I'll send you a copy of that decision. I agree with you, Commissioner. Those are all incredibly interesting decisions and you've given us some insight as to some of the issues that have that, that may guide us as as general duty clause cases continue to appear before your commission in coming, uh, coming months. Uh, so uh, with that, I'm kind of curious, when you do get an opinion that'll come back before you when you get a full commission again, how do you select, because you, you mentioned just now that that these are cases where there might have been separate opinions or dissent. Uh, so when you get an opinion, how do you decide amongst the three commissioners who's selected to write the lead opinion? Well, what we do is we um, indicate to each other in a meeting, for example, I may say if uh, we voted to uh, 
affirm the uh, administrative law judge's decision, one commissioner say, I intend to dissent on the basis I've discussed in our meetings, which are open under the Sunshine Act to the public. Um, and then thereafter, the, that commissioner and their counsel may go about uh, drafting the dissent. The other two can decide that they're going to issue a majority opinion uh, that majority opinion, we rely on attorneys with the Office of General Counsel as well as our individual counsel to outline the, the opinion, and then we just formulate it as you would in any other appellate court uh, going forward. Um, <clears throat> there is back and forth as people want to respond to say something I said in a dissent and vice versa, um, which is uh, not untypical of any you know court of appeals, whether federal or state. And and uh, when you you mentioned the Sunshine Act, I thought that was interesting. Uh, a lot of people don't realize how how difficult that makes life on a day to day basis for the commissioners. I think uh, the Sunshine Act requires that when when the commissioners get together, it must be a public meeting. That's correct. And unfortunately, we only have three, two of which are constitute a quorum uh, under the Act. So unfortunately, the two commissioners who may want to discuss. Uh, outside of the scope of a public meeting, uh, a decision that they have to render uh, cannot do so unless it's noticed under the Sunshine Act and held in public, which be a contrast, say, from the five-member panels, whether it's the Federal Mind State and Health Review Commission or the NLRB's membership, where two of those members are entitled to speak outside of public scrutiny about a decision that they have to render. So it makes it very awkward, unfortunately. It would be nice if we had more than three uh, commissioners uh, on the Occupational Safety Health Review Commission to avoid that issue, but um, I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon because of the difficulty of opening up the statute to change that without uh, creating some other issues about what other changes of the statute might be made, some of which are currently in bills pending. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so, so anytime two people are talking, two commissioners are talking, this is uh, arguably something that has to go through a public meeting kind of procedure. How do you how do you communicate with the commissioners on a day-to-day -day basis? So what you do is essentially use your counsel uh, to meet and say, this is where Commissioner Sullivan is headed in this uh, decision, and uh, the other counsel can say, well, this is where Commissioner Atwood is. I don't think we're going to reach an agreement on that issue. Uh, and then they report back. So it's kind of like having your... Uh, uh, shuttle diplomacy between uh, your your interpreters or your uh, representatives. Um, <laughs> so it just makes it a little bit more uh, cumbersome, but you know we can still get it done. Uh, one commissioner uh, in year, many years past had uh, reported to me that it makes it even difficult to find people to get together for lunch. Yes, they they really discourage the ethics. Officers within the commission discourage us from spending time alone together, just to not create the appearance that we are going to be um, talking about a pending case. Um, <laughs> well, I hope your offices are close to each other for your counsel's sake or that your counsel has a good, comfortable pair of running shoes. Yeah, they're very close. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's workable. It's not the best situation, but it certainly is uh, not as bad as it sounds. So, Commissioner, in this period of being in quarate, it seems to me that uh, th the decisions coming out from the administrative law judges 
can continue to be uh, employers or either party can petition for discretionary review. Uh, but if they petition for discretionary review, it could get parked for a long time because there isn't a quorum at the review right. commission. Right. Does that affect whether or not the sole remaining commissioner is less likely to grant a petition for discretionary review, knowing that if he denies that or she denies that petition, the employer or the other party would have rights to just go straight to federal court and their case could continue proceeding at pace? Well, it does. I mean, I think that before these appointments were announced, and there wasn't any indication as to uh, from the White House as to who the appointees would be. I did have that consideration. At the same time, the parties know that they can um, just not file a petition within the 30 days and seek review from the appropriate United States Court of Appeals. Um, so <clears throat> I was concerned about that. I believe that we'll have a quorum uh, rather shortly uh, in Washington terms, whatever that means. So that I now I don't feel that obligation to consider whether or not that case is going to sit forever. Yeah, that must be a huge relief, I think, for everybody, for you, the parties, uh, the, the agency, the uh, OSHA, and I think that's uh, that's been great news. Uh, well, Commissioner, we we uh, this is your program uh, today, and so before we close, I'm uh, happy to leave the audience in your hands, if in case you have any other final thoughts for for us to take away. Well, I would just encourage everyone to uh, call the United States Senator and get me a quorum. Um, <laughs> it's in the it's in their hands now, and I'd like to see it happen as quickly as possible. Um, and for everybody to spread the word that the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission is not part of OSHA. No, it's My true. The, the independence of that review commission is one of I think the the really well thought out parts of the act, and so I hope at least. If the rest of the world doesn't get it, my OSHA 3030 community of listeners is uh, a more educated group now, thanks to you about that. And I and I think we're all in the OSHA 3030 community looking forward to an exciting new uh, commission composition, uh, thanks to, to, to the good work of, of getting nominations and hopefully getting through that process quickly. And so I'm we're hoping for good things for you once they get uh, sworn in and in place. Well, I appreciate that. That's uh, something I hope will happen. I only have 18 months left approximately on my term. The way the statute works, the, the uh, terms of each commissioner are six years ending in April, and I fi filled a vacancy um, but had four years left in 19 – I'm sorry, in 2017. So I would be, like, I would be anxious to get some work done in that remaining 18 months. You're welcome to demur on my last question, but if you were asked to uh, to serve another term, would you consider it? And you can say you don't want to answer it if you want. <laughs> well, I would prefer not answering that at this time. It's a bit <laughs> presumptuous that I'd even be reappointed. Um, so let's just leave it at that. Well, then we got 18 months to get to see a lot of progress, Commissioner. I am really grateful to you for joining the program. And uh, I'm thankful to all of our attendees for listening and for spreading the good word about the program. And I, I will hope I'll ask one more question then. If we had a chance to get you back on board, would you be willing to come back to the OSHA 3030? Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to the, to the listeners, and uh, I thank the listeners for listening. 
Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And until next month, stay safe. So long.